Welcome back, everybody. This is Todd Sylvester with the Todd Sylvester Inspires Belief Cast. Once again, I have an amazing guest on today. His name is Sean McDonald. What's up, Todd? How you doing, brother? Good, man. Good. Thanks hey. for being here. It's early here at Wasatch Recovery Treatment Center. Um, it's a five-star resort, and it's a five-star treatment center, man. We That's when I first met Sean, actually, is he was a client who came through here and and I got to know him really well, and it's, he's a guy that I've grown to love and admire, and you guys are going to love his story. I, I want to thank our sponsor, Veracity Networks, for their support, and I want to thank all of you for continuing listening to me and sharing it with other people. We're, it's amazing. I think we're over 50,000 downloads now, and it's That's just crazy. It, it's great, man, and I yeah. just couldn't do it without all the support, so thank thank you for doing that. So a little background on Sean. Um you know, I hear this a lot of people who have overcome addiction where they live their lives with gratitude and uh, because I think they're just even, <laughs> you're just grateful to be breathing and alive, especially yeah. when you hear your story. Yeah. Um, you know, around age 17, he started experimenting with prescription pills. Uh, he had already been kind of drinking and doing drugs up until that point, but uh, that's when things got bad and eventually led to heroin. This led him um, to the point where he was homeless. He overdosed multiple times. Again, that's, you know, it's amazing that you're even alive. Um, there were several attempts that, to, for you to get clean. And the beautiful thing is you just never gave up. You kept trying and trying and trying. You took a lot of crap from me and a few other people, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you did it. And now you manage your, uh, a sober living home, which is really cool. We'll, we'll get into that. You're attending uh, Utah Valley University, and uh, we're here to learn how you did all that and what you've been through. So yeah, okay. Well, yeah, um, give us a little background. Where did you grow up? And a little bit about your family. Yeah, man. Um, I just grew up in Sandy, uh, right down the street. Um, lived there actually up until I became homeless. But um, only child. My mom and dad really good childhood. Um, really. Had lots of friends growing up. Nothing, no like trauma or anything in that respect. But sure. Um, as I got up a little bit older, later elementary school, junior high, I did start to notice my dad was drinking a lot. Um, okay. Um, I d did grow up LDS. My dad is not LDS, so there's a little bit of kind of dysfunction there, I guess, on you know what I'm supposed to be, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> so mom's saying go to church and. You're seeing dad doing maybe the opposite of the things that you would learn. Yeah. Like, maybe we shouldn't be doing that. I mean, or... I don't I don't want to say he was like total opposite. I mean, my dad was like a scout leader for a little bit. And sure. He was like very supportive and me going to church and stuff. But there was inconsistencies in the way like he was living in the way I was kind of being taught on Sundays and right. stuff, you know. <laughs> yeah. But, hey, how was it being the only child? Was that hard for you? Was that difficult? Or did you, Is I mean, is it, obviously it's all you knew, but... Yeah. How was that? It's like you said, it's all I knew. Um, I did get very close to my friends, <clears throat> excuse me, because of that. Um, and my cousins, my family, my extended family. Um, definitely all the attention from my parents, though, which led to its own problems as I got older. But, right. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a good childhood, man. I, it, uh, other than than the things I've mentioned, you know? Yeah. What did you do growing up? Did you play any sports or things like that? Played, I think I did like, uh, what, junior, 
junior jazz yeah, yeah for a uh-huh. little bit i was horrible at it though i wasn't <laughs> a basketball star like you oh i don't know <laughs> <laughs> i played soccer that was probably the one i gravitated towards most um and then i about age 12 got into guitar um picked up a guitar and just never put it down since then just started nice. playing and still playing today huh yeah yeah nice. and then played trumpet and french horn through junior high and high school didn't really stick with those though but i stuck with guitar Okay. Well, so let's talk about, you know, obviously you started, you know, maybe experimenting with drinking and smoking pot and things like that. When did that all start? So I think I stole one of my dad's first beers uh, when I was like 14, I think. I didn't know what I was doing. Were you by yourself at that time or with friends or? I think the first time I did it, it was by myself. And then the other... The like second time I was like I grabbed a buddy and I was like, yeah, like let's do it you know right like mixing vodka with beer it wasn't good it was yeah oh wow. yeah it was bad that's nasty but, um and then around that time I started noticing like just hanging out with friends that they had drank before too and mm-hmm. that led to us hanging out at other parents' houses and somehow getting beer I can't remember how but and drinking and that kind of just opened up my mind to feeling different you know mm-hmm. it's just like if this makes me feel like this i wonder what other things make me feel like yeah it kind of you know when you're at that when you're that age or whatever it's almost it's almost like the rush is knowing that i'm doing something maybe i shouldn't be doing oh for sure right yeah because yeah that i mean i definitely still had that like that religious upbringing in me right. you know so like this was naughty so to speak yeah. and it that in itself was exciting for sure yeah i remember when i when i snuck a, a drink of uh, some hard liquor from my dad's wet bar in the basement and he wasn't around but i knew it was wrong yeah but just the rush of it for some reason was like whoa oh yeah you know and I, I mean i didn't get drunk or anything like that but it was just like just knowing i was maybe doing something that was kind of edgy but yeah. then your friends kind of cheer you on and, and then you kind of like wow I'm, I'm accepted and this is kind of cool yeah and I think that kind of leads into part of what I think a lot of people don't realize about addiction too is because it's all illegal, all the substances are illegal mm-hmm. and you're living this like kind of this underworld life that in itself is exciting too, that you're doing something illegal. Right. Kind of just, yeah. so I, there's definitely a rush aspect to that as yeah. well. So you started doing that and just kind of take it from there and just talk about how things got out of hand eventually for you. <clears throat> yeah. Um, so I think when I was 16, I, right after junior high, I smoked marijuana for the first time. Um, and just kind of progressed from there, man. Um, mushrooms, ecstasy by high school just wasn't anything like everyday type thing, but it was regular, you know, like it was like on the weekends, like what can we figure out to do to get messed up and, uh. By did your family or your mom or dad know that this was going on at this point with you or did you hide it? Did you have to try to avoid, hey, keeping that from your parents? No, at this point, no. Um, I was still doing relatively well in school. I was playing in bands and talent shows and after school, like uh, 
I was keeping it together so to, like at least I thought I was you know right. it was it, it was fun like it was a lot of fun at that age but, but did your parents know though that you were doing it no not okay. until I had um year a couple of years later gotten into prescription pills but um that was probably I don't think they even had a clue until after high school okay so you were about 17 I think you uh, you were saying earlier what we read on your bio is when you got caught up uh, you know trying prescription pills for the first time talk about that yeah so um like I said I was in that mind that mind state of just wanting to to experiment with different substances you know um and I had friends that were doing um, Percocets, Loratabs, and one of my friends gave some to me. I think I was at school too, and I just remember that that first feeling I got from him, that sense of well-being, that just comfort, uh, bliss. It, like right off the bat, that first feeling, I it was like nothing I had never, f- nothing I had ever felt before, and. Um, looking back now I was definitely hooked right from that first yeah, I remember you telling me that before where you felt like just the first time doing that that man this is this is what I've been missing kind of thing yeah I want this more than anything yeah and and that's kind of a scary thing I think you know you know you look at the opioid uh, you know epidemic that's going on in this world yeah it's horrible and it, it's scary right and you know a lot of people you know they get caught up in it from an injury they weren't looking to get mm-hmm. you know high or whatever kind of like what you were kind of looking for at that time but you know that's scary just because how it made you feel you're like man i want this again yeah yeah and how easy and everywhere it was too at my high school like it mm-hmm. was everywhere really like people on the football team were doing it like ev- like all my friends not all of them but most of them were were doing that at the time and yeah, like you said, it's it's it really is an epidemic, man. It's lost yeah. a lot of friends to this. Yeah. So continue. You know what? How did what what led from there? Yeah. So um, at at one point we had crushed up the pills and started snorting them, um, and then oxycotton came into the mix by a friend and crushed that up and snorted it and. It was just, you know, a quicker, more intense feeling of that one I had already fell in, fell in love with, you mm-hmm. know? Excuse me. Um, and by senior year, I actually even remember being in class one day. A teacher was playing a video in class, and I was in the back of the room crushing up pills on the desk and snorting it right there in class. Wow. Yeah. So you got to that point where you're like kind of just really brazen with it. Didn't oh, care. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was every day or at least I was trying to do it every day at, at most every couple of days. Was definitely. your schoolwork at this point being affected? Because you said you're getting fairly good grades, but at this point, I, now you're a senior, it sounds like. Yeah, for sure. I mean, over like from junior high until my senior year, they slowly declined. I mean, I was never in jeopardy of like not graduating high school or right. anything like that. But I, I used to be like an honor roll student, and this was I was probably I don't know below a three point oh. You know, right. it was definitely yeah. So things declining. were struggling. Yeah. Um, now at this point, had your parents noticed something was going on with you? 
I think they were concerned, but they didn't know. They probably didn't assume that, well, he's doing, he's snorting oxy. Yeah, they they might have thought, hey, he might be, like, trying alcohol or just, you know, right. being a teenager. Doing or he might just be a little sad or depressed yeah, or whatever. Hormones, you know? Yeah, hormones. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and we kind of laugh, but I think a lot of parents get caught up where the last thing you want to do is assume maybe your kids are doing drugs. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, especially on the level you were doing it yeah. at that point. Oh, yeah. But... um you know, I think as parents, maybe they need to be more, you know, I guess, open-ended with some of these hard questions mm-hmm. kind of thing, you know. But uh, I don't know. I just think that's an interesting thing. I mean, I know maybe I know we're kind of veering from your story just for a second, but I think as parents, you know, could your parents have done anything at that point to, to stop what you were doing, even if they did find out I and mean, come down on you? Do you think that would have done anything at that moment or? I don't think so, to be honest with you. Um, <clears throat> yeah, and it was a few years l- later. I think I was like 19. I was probably smoking Oxycontin at the time, and I I, I know I'd gotten into some financial trouble, and this just made, you just made me think of this. So I told mm-hmm. my parents, I was like, I'm addicted to Oxycontin, I need... I need help. I need to do something. I think I was mostly trying to get money. Right. But I, I did tell them I broke down, told them. Um, and I just remember my dad say, like in shock saying like, you're lying. Like it didn't even like register, like register with him that I could be telling the truth. Like, yeah, he was like, you're making this up for some reason. And my mom was devastated. She's the sweetest, nicest lady ever. Right. And there, if they would have caught me before that, I don't think, there would have been anything they could have done. It was just, I, because I hadn't gotten out of control with the other substances, right. like this wasn't anything different. So there was that battle of like, okay, I'm doing this a lot. It's causing problems, but I just need to manage it differently. Yeah, I need, so you slow I, down, maybe slow a little down. Bit. Yeah, yeah. Take a break, something like that. Yeah. Well, plus all your friends are doing it with you at this point. And this oh, yeah. is where you find your acceptance and your validation. Yeah. And, you know, it's yeah. kind of hard for that to to kind of go away by a conversation sometimes, but you know, I think a lot of times parents just don't know what to say or do in those moments. Oh. Like your dad's even like, "Well, no, this isn't true. There's no, no way." Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah, and I'm like, I was in college at the time, had a job, and so it was that, like, see, I'm I'm, a, I'm doing well, I'm successful. Um, yeah, I was. I don't know, lot, lots of lying, lying to myself mm-hmm. over the next few years. So obviously things increase and talk about what happens as that hap- as that goes on. Yeah, so I had mentioned, so we had started smoking the Oxycontin on tinfoil. Um, and some at some point over the next couple of years, they had changed the formulation of Oxycontin so it wasn't abusable in the same way. And so I remember it was around that time I felt my first withdrawals. And it mm. like it just hits you like a ton of bricks. Like this is miserable. Like the worst pain, physical pain over your body, but on top of that, you're depressed and like it just it's horrible. And the only thing to make that go away is to use more, but you couldn't find the oxycotton anymore. Right. And so I had f- friends again that had started to smoke heroin, 
and it's smoked the exact same way it's it's literally like the same substance it's kind of crazy yeah wow and i i mean i grew up with a good you know upbringing i never thought i would try heroin um but i was in enough pain that i was like i'm i just want this to go away and i'll figure something out you know like tomorrow if i can just feel normal for a little bit and tomorrow i'll come up with a plan to to get off this stuff and so i tried heroin um and it just escalated even more from there you know i never Mm -hmm. i don't think i ever did oxycontin again after that it was a fraction of the price Uh, i think it's like ten dollars compared to eighty dollars it's for the same amount and it just yeah, that's a I think that was a common thing, right? People going from oxys straight mm-hmm. to heroin because yeah. one, they changed the formula, yeah. but then also the cost was so so much cheaper. Oh yeah, yeah, and that's I don't I haven't met a lot of people that just said they just started doing heroin one day. You know, right. it's, it's usually progressed, yeah, from something else, and that's definitely my story as well. And well, I think you also mentioned to me before, you know, you know, in our conversations in the past that you know, in your head, you're like, I'll never do heroin. I wouldn't do that. Yeah. Right. I'm not the person that does that stuff. Yeah. I don't do that kind of stuff. Yeah. But how that just gradually got to the point where, well, okay, now I'll, I'll do that. Yeah. You know? And it was out of desperation too. You know, I just, Mm -hmm. I didn't want to feel that way. Um, and guys, I've been saying, you know, it's like I was snorting the pills, but I would never smoke them. I would smoke the pills. I would never smoke heroin and this progression eventually led to IV use and mm-hmm. shooting up and I was only going to try it once, once again, you know, um, right. my friends were doing it and I had a friend, I told a friend I wanted to do it and he shot me up for the first time and that's when things got really bad, man. Um, I, like they were already really bad and yeah. I was just making it worse and worse, digging myself into a hole. Um, and that's what led to my overdoses. Yeah, let's talk about that. When did you, you mentioned, you know, that to me before, but talk, let, let our listeners know what, how, what happened with your overdose and yeah, what was going on there. So at this point, like I said, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I had told my parents that I had been struggling at this point. They're, they've accepted. I have a problem. Um, I, I think they even know, that it's heroin at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't know I'm, in, I don't think they know I'm injecting, but they do know I'm using heroin. And I've been to an outpatient treatment um, once. I think I, you know, I'd get like a month or two clean and then go use again. So I had been clean for like a couple months and decided to use and um, got heroin, came home to my parents' house and shot up in my basement in my room and I usually would always keep my door locked for some the last thing I remember is something telling me to unlock the door and the next thing I remember is there's seven paramedics around me um they had injected me with Narcan there's oxygen on my face and I my dad had found me dead on the floor oh wow yeah he said he found me blue not breathing um with my phone out too. I don't know if I knew I was overdosing or what, but, um, like you were trying to call someone or yeah, something. Any, I right. don't know. I uh-huh. don't know. 
um and that was really tough man not not even that i had just died just seeing more so even the the look on my dad's face and then my mom when she came home and i was you know i blamed myself for putting them through that right and i went to the hospital and the first thing i did when i i got out was use more so i didn't have to to fill that that disappointment that shame yeah which is ironic because here you are feeling bad you put them through it yeah but then you don't want to i guess sit in that and accept that or feel that and then so yeah. you end up using uh, using again and i think that's that's really what addiction is um is that you know wendy one of our therapists here talks about this all the time she says um, addiction is the perpetual avoidance of legitimate suffering. Yeah. Cause that would have been legitimate suffering. Yes. You did something mm-hmm. that's causing your parents to feel sad and scared and hurting. Yeah. And addiction wants, you know, that addiction part of you is like, no, I want to avoid all that. I don't want to yeah. even face that. So I'm going to go escape again versus, you know, if we're healthy, we sit in that and we go through it and it's hard still, don't get me wrong, but yeah, we sit through it and we can do it. But, uh, you know, that's what addiction is. And so you go right back to what you're comfortable with, I guess. Right. For sure. And I totally agree with that. It's pushing down these things that you should be feeling in life, so to speak, I guess. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the hardest things people I think struggle with myself included when they get clean is filling these years of things they should have dealt with in some way. Yeah. It's kind of all at the same time, you know, yeah. and I've told that to people at the sober living and stuff too. They're just like, man, I'm just, I'm depressed. You know, it's like, good. I mean, you should be depressed, you know, like this yeah, is, this is years of stuff that's coming back and yeah, it's, I, yeah. I, well, that's what's really cool about what you're doing now, and we'll get to that in a minute. But you're you're now get to help people. You know, you've been through it. Yeah. And they know that, and so they're going to sit and listen to someone who's been through it. But we'll get to that in a minute, because there's more of this story. Yeah. This continues. Sure. So let's just kind of take it from there, and then I'll let you kind of talk about what, how things progressed. Yeah. So it wasn't long after this that I did come to Wasatch, but also. Um, I did overdose one more time and this one almost scared me more. Um, and there was many times closely over, close to overdose, but this one, I was alone in my car and shot up and came to with just like this huge deep breath, looked at the clock about half an hour had gone by that I was completely out. Um, wow. and I, I can't, describe the feeling other than I felt like I was close to death like I did not feel right I could feel the blood rushing back into my body there's a pain in my head and my chest that was like very profound um and I was completely alone just probably slumped over in my car you know um and then shortly after that I shot up and decided to drive before so okay go back so here you are, you you pretty much died. Yeah. And you felt this feeling that I'm dying. Yeah. So, but then you go right back to, once you kind of come to a little bit, you shoot back up and then drive. Yeah. 
Wow. Yep. Were you scared at this point? I mean, were you like going, wow, I'm I'm going to die? Like, did you ever have that thought of this could be it and I'm dying? And was that a scary thought for you at that time? Do you remember? Not at this point, no. Okay. It, uh, it, there's a lot of ego, like, that I can manage this still, even though I knew, like, this, like, it was like wow. I can... There's a kind of like I f- a feeling like I can't die maybe even mm-hmm. it was yeah lots it's a w- crazy time to even think about man um, but I did like I said I shot up and I drove and I was on my way to work so I was running late as an addict usually does right <laughs> and uh, I didn't even wait to fill the effects from the shot I just started driving. Mm-hmm. And I um, was driving on the freeway and I crashed into a freeway sign um, and totaled my car and somehow didn't kill myself or somebody else in, in the process. It's a, it's, it's a miracle that, yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's, I mean, I was, I, it's crazy to even think about now. Um, at this point, you know, my my parents myself too like i was like okay I, I gotta i gotta make a change um somehow got here at wasatch recovery i'd never done residential treatment before and <clears throat> even though i didn't stay sober after coming to wasatch you know it uh just being around people here in this place and good people man I really at this this was like the first time that recovery was kind of like instilled in me like I was like wow there's a better life yeah away from this stuff I can get past inside of me somewhere you know yeah um you know that's like I said earlier this is when when you and I first met and I got to help counsel you through through your stay here and you know one of the things I remember most about you is that you are very I guess sensitive and and I say that in the way of like you kind of wear your heart on your sleeve like you feel really deeply if that makes sense yeah like if something's going really good you feel the real the goodness of it yeah. if it's going bad or something goes wrong man you f- you go to the depths of the, how bad it could be and you make it worse kind of thing but yeah. you feel so much is that fair to say I'd say so yeah yeah and I think and I think a lot of addicts do. They're they're they feel deeply mm-hmm. on all levels. And I think, again, what do we do? We want to avoid those type of, you know, intense feelings. You yeah. Know? And uh, but I noticed that about you as we, you know, as I worked with you back then, is how you just were, and you were really down though too. And I remember, and which is like we said, it's understandable. Yeah. But I, I could almost even see that you just almost felt like. You know, it seems like everyone else seems to be getting it, but why am I? Why am I not? Yeah, well, the first time I did come here a few times. Right. <laughs> the <laughs> first, the first, which you didn't even work here the first time I right. came here. Yeah, it was like I think the second or third. Because the I second mean? time you were here, and the first time, I was doing, like I, I really did feel joy. Like it was <clears> like, like this is great. I haven't felt like this in years. Like okay. I'm gonna stay sober. It was like, it was good, and I stayed clean for about seven months. And started drinking, smoking pot, and just one day decided to use again. And that's when the down 
on myself really started, you know, because it was like I was convinced I was never going to use again. Okay, so that makes a lot of sense. And yeah. I think that happens to a lot of yeah. people who relapse. They're thinking, man, I was, I was like yeah. determined. I, like what the hell happened? What am I doing? Know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, and it's it can happen that quickly. At least it did then, mm-hmm. you know. And I think a lot of it was still just being young in like right. your early twenties. Like that's a, you're still just figuring out who you are and stuff. But it's a, uh, so I came back to residential, stayed for like a month, and then immediately relapsed like right again out of it, you yep. know. Mm-hmm. Which I was just in the state of like. I'm out, I'm out of control. I don't know what what to do. I'm I don't want to use anymore, but I can't stop. Mm-hmm. And I had stopped. That was the most frustrating thing. So that's when depression and that kind of self hatred really started. I mean, it started before that, but it was it was intensified for sure. Yeah. Um. And over the next few years, I think it was a few other a few other attempts at going back to treatment and stuff. Um, trying to keep one foot in like my life I'd created in recovery, you know, mm-hmm. like still trying to reach out to people and convince people I was doing well. I think I even remember meeting with you one time and then going out to my car and smoking heroin like right after yeah. it was. Yeah. We, yeah, we met off and on several times over the, you know, over the year or so. Yeah. And, and, uh, I mean, I could tell how bad you wanted it, but I could also tell that you were, you were white knuckling it. Yeah. You know, just kind of like holding on, like, cause you, logically you wanted to be done. Yeah. But emotionally and I couldn't, that desire was yeah. still there to use. That's what we call white knuckling. It was like, you got that, those two polar opposites yep. and you're just holding on, you know? So, but yeah. that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, at age 25, um, my mom had had enough. You know, she had been threatening to kick me out for for years, but, I mean, I'm her baby. I'm her only child. She, right. She, and in my, in my head, too, I was like, she'll never kick me out. Right. She had actually gotten remarried to um, actually one of your former neighbors, Wayne. Wayne, and yes. We love Wayne. Yeah. Shout out to Wayne. Yeah, I love Wayne. Now. Yeah didn't like him then yeah and and he was tough on you let's no, just be real i i as much as i a part of me still hates to admit it i don't <laughs> know if my mom would have been strong enough to kick me out if it wasn't for him yeah and and let's talk about that just for a second because that's tough for any parent to do oh, to yeah. kick their son out of the house yeah. like you're you know we're you have no place to go you're going to be homeless yeah and that's going through the mind of your mom obviously but, you know, knowing Wayne, you know, and I know some background, he's, you know, he's a no BS kind of guy. Yeah. Like he just shoots it straight. And I think he was shooting it to you straight. And yeah. here's this guy like, who are you? You know? Yeah. You you can't tell me what to do. Or, yeah. You know I mean? <laughs> yeah. No, just butting heads too. Like, uh-huh. also there's a little bit of like, you're not good enough for my mom type thing, but no one would have been good enough for my mom. You know, I, right. I think the world of her. Right. And yeah. But yeah, just the fact that he was coming in and just kind of, like you said, no BS, just telling me what to do. I did not like it. And right. <laughs> <laughs> no. So, so, but they got to the point together, they just said, hey, you're done. Get out. You yeah. Know, and we're not going to, 
basically what they're saying is we're not going to put up with this anymore. Yeah. And thank- Which honestly is the greatest love. Yeah. You could ever have received. Absolutely. Think about it. Right. No. At the at the moment, you're like, this sucks. You T- know. Tough love is the hardest to give, but it's the it's what's needed. I think. Yeah. A ton in recovery, and it's not. I'm. For parents that are still, you know, kind of, it's enabling. You know. Yeah. Like that's and my mom wasn't trying to enable me. Right. But she definitely was. You yeah. know. It was. Well, parents, your mom's intentions or any parents' intentions are good. They want what's yeah, best for you. Exactly. So, but they're thinking kicking you out. That's the worst thing we could do. Yeah. No. When in reality, it's the best, especially with the position you were in, because you had been, you know, they've tried everything at this point. Yeah. And so have you. You know, you're. Yeah. Just, they're just like we're done. You know. Yeah. So talk about that. You get kicked out. You're yeah. done. They're done with you, basically saying we're not going to enable you anymore. Yeah. So um, I was holding down some jobs at the time somehow, just landscaping daily jobs, mm-hmm. <laughs> and did find a, f- a a roof over my head with a friend from high school. Friend. Um, I say that lightly because you know it was I know a, a using friend yes. type thing. Yeah. And let's do poison together. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, he wasn't using heroin, but he was using all other sorts of stuff, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, uh, this was, this was probably my lowest point before I even didn't have a roof over my head. Mm-hmm. Not having my family kind of, they, they still were like saying, you know, we support you. If there's anything we can do to help you, let us know. But it was not having, feeling like I didn't have my family having gone to treatment, I think six or seven times at this point. And I just given up and I just remember being broken in my room at the time and just praying to God that this, if, if this is all there is for me to just kill me cause, cause I don't have the strength to take my own life. Like, cause I didn't want my, mom grandma my dad yeah to know that i had, i had taken my own life so if if this was all there was to just to just end it wow. and i'll never forget that feeling it was but i uh i i continued to try to manage those jobs and lived there got kicked out of that place too for not being able to pay rent and just started kind of couch surfing on whosoever couch i could stay at mm-hmm. so i don't want to say i was like homeless like at the homeless shelter you know i i was yeah. f- w- for the time being i was good at trying to find a place to stay each night but there were nights i wouldn't know where i was gonna lay my head at night you know just yeah. riding tracks or walking around just calling people like can i stay at your place having friends i've known my whole life say man you can't stay here you know and so i think i even called you at this point mm-hmm. and i was I like that. and rightfully so they're like you can't come back to wasatch you know i've, yeah. I've been here three times you know yeah. um and I th- you even told me to go down to the other side academy and it was to that point i was just like you know if i'm gonna try this i'm gonna see if i can get into treatment i didn't have insurance at this point mm-hmm. um i was 26 
but I was going to try to get into treatment somewhere, anywhere, and really try it. And if I failed, I remembered making this with myself. I was just going to kill myself if it didn't work. Because mm. it gets harder each time. Oh, yeah. It's... So somehow, um, my even my parents weren't going to pay for treatment. Which they, like I said, they had paid multiple times. I, uh, thanks to a family member and actually um, Julie Berg, who is a therapist that used to work here, and Julie Jackson down in Orem, I was able to get into a sober living and um, a day treatment facility. And I, at this point, like, I was I was broken Todd I I I was just kind of like a shell of like a person there wasn't anything left of Sean I was I I told myself I was gonna try this and no BS no no excuses like this is it or this is it type thing you know yeah um so I actually detoxed at the sober living. Didn't have a car, had a bag of like ripped clothes to my name. No money, no food, any of that stuff. Right. Um, and walked about 40 minutes to treatment each day. Wow. Still kind of detoxing. Mm-hmm. But you're doing it. But I'm doing it. And it's, I just remember some of the guys there you know just like giving me like clothes and stuff just like this like overwhelming feeling of gratitude those were like the first feelings I remember actually feeling again you know it was just like these little things of like yeah eat some of my food man like these little things that I had just taken for granted like having yeah my whole life um really love just feeling love and gratitude again really kind of set the the tone for that recovery but also for the first time acknowledging this self-hatred and because the drugs were gone you know yeah just like i'm you know i grew up here in salt lake i'm down in orem i didn't know anybody you know it was it was like i'm completely alone and wow don't have anybody and like I said when I came to Wasatch you know this really did instill something in me so I I had all the tools yeah to start for sure living a different way so every morning while I'm walking to treatment I'm <laughs> it's just funny to think about now but I'm I'm I love myself I love myself I love myself like while I'm walking wow. to treatment every day you know mm-hmm. just I'm telling things I like my about myself, little things. Um, I think that's incredible, dude. Yeah. Mm. It's it's amazing the power the mind has, man, and it's uh and it. I don't want, I don't want people to think like 
you tell yourself you love yourself, you know, a few days in a row, it's, it's, <laughs> you just love yourself, yeah. you know, it's, and to this day, you know, it's, it was, it's months and months of rewiring your brain to yeah, for sure. think something different, praying, meditating, going to the gym, starting to live a different way and feel differently about yourself. And right. I started waiting tables at, <clears throat> excuse me, at uh, Applebee's down there in Orem. So I'm working full time, going to day treatment five days a week, which is six hours a day, five days a week. Right. And then we're required to go to AA meetings too on top of that. So, right. you know, I'm. So you're busy. I'm busy, man. <laughs> but I'm I'm not griping. I'm not complaining. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm doing it because this it. I'm. I made that commitment with myself. I'm I'm going to do this. Well, just even when you were saying that you would walk 40 minutes both ways kind of thing, I mean, that shows commitment as well. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because it would have been easy to go, it's too far. You know what? It's too far. Yeah, I couldn't I gotta find figure a ride. Something. I can't yeah. get a ride. I'm not gonna, no, I'm walking. Yeah. You know, I had a friend of mine who he had lost his driver's license because of a, DUI, a couple DUIs and... He had a job though to go to, but he had no no one was gonna take him nothing. So he would ride his he'd ride his ten speed on the <laughs> freeway. <laughs> you know, it's a funny story. He ended up getting a ticket on the freeway riding his ten speed. <laughs> yeah, anyway, but but the point is is that you were doing whatever it took at that point. It sounds like you know you started going okay, th- like you said, this is it. But I'm gonna put in whatever effort it needs to be. And even you just saying it, I was I got really touched when you said. You know, I, I, you know, I love me. I love me. I love yeah. me. I love me. You know, it sounds almost kind of silly, but yeah. it's, it's something you needed to do. And it's a lie at first. Yeah. You know. Yeah, you don't believe it no, at first at not all. At all. No. You're like, no, I actually hate myself. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna keep saying. <laughs> I'll it. keep saying the opposite. <laughs> yeah. But keep. I think that's impressive, Sean. Honestly, and I think our listeners, you know, those who might be struggling, it's these little things that make a big difference. Yeah. You know. And, but it wasn't a little thing. I mean, that's probably hard for you to do to say those things because you didn't feel it yet. You didn't believe yeah. it. Yeah, it felt uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't feel good at first, you know. <clears throat> it's a, uh, and that's, I think that just goes to show the power of the mind, the soul. Mm-hmm. Just like you can control your thoughts the way you think about yourself the way you feel about yourself yeah um but yeah so i did a, I did day treatment for five months down there mm-hmm. and continued waiting tables eventually moved out of the sober living and moved into a transitional living where mm-hmm. there's a little less structure right um the other thing too is you know while i was there it's like I said, it's required to go to AA meetings and mm-hmm. stuff. And yeah. I specifically remember one time when I met with you and I was kind of like, I don't know if I want to do like AA, like rational recovery. Like I'm just, I was kind of conflicted. I had friends that had done both. Sure. I had done both. Right. And you said, I don't, I'm paraphrasing, but something along the lines of, I don't care like what you do, like AA or whatever, but I never want you to refer to yourself as an addict again. Mm-hmm. And I never did the whole time. And nice. I would go to meetings and share and I'd say I'm grateful to be clean and sober today, but I I never once 
have referred to myself as an addict in these yeah in these two years that's awesome and that is a huge part of my recovery you know and it doesn't have to be like one way or the the other right. you know people can get whatever there's knowledge in everything there and, truly and is everything. there's truth everywhere and i found a happy medium i think cool. between those things but well i want to just i'm glad you brought that up because i want to explain to the listeners who may not understand why i i say that not only to you to all my clients yeah because <clears throat> what follows i am follows you yeah and the truth is like we're both sitting here right now and i think you just you you've just celebrated is it two years yeah two years clean two years so congratulations Thanks, man, man. Yeah. So proud of you, dude. Um, but the truth is, we're clean right now. Yeah. And even when I meet with a client who <clears throat> hasn't drank or used in, say, even just three days or two days, the truth is, you're clean. Yeah. So why should we tell ourselves that we always label ourselves as an addict? Because what happens is that becomes our identity. Mm -hmm. And you're smart enough and, and you've been through enough to know that if you go back to all that stuff, you're right back in your addiction. You already know that. Yeah. But let's let's label the truth. What's the truth? And right now I'm grateful to be clean and sober. Yeah. You know, so I just wanna I just wanted to explain to our listeners who may not understand yeah. again what uh, what follows I am follows you. It becomes your identity. For sure. So anyway, thanks for sharing that. That's yeah. really cool. Well, also, it's just I've someone broke it down to me is like, what do you feel when you say I am an addict? Like, what does an addict mean to you? You know, mm -hmm. it doesn't feel good to say like it's yeah. at least to me. It's not. And I understand yeah. it's part of acceptance. Like sure. Accepting your. Yeah, you got to understand alcohol, that. Yeah, it's that's part of my recovery. My life is telling myself positive things about myself, yeah. you know. I love it. So, <laughs> that's <clears throat> so you 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 just you've just celebrated two years clean. Um, you look amazing. You look great. You're 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 running a sober living home. Mm -hmm. um, you're also going to school at Utah Valley University, right? Yeah. And so, just talk about what's going on right now in your life and how you're doing. Yeah. So, um, let's see. Yeah, so about a year ago, I switched from Applebee's to P.F. Chang's, a little bit nicer of a restaurant waiting tables there. Mm -hmm. And then in January, um, Julie Jackson that I had mentioned yeah. earlier, she uh, she works at Steps down in Orem and Payson, kind of all over the place. Oh, and yeah. she asked me to come back and manage the sober living, this, the same one I detoxed at and moved into. Um, so yeah, I'm ahead of two, there's two houses on the facility about, we're full right now. It's about 20 guys. Uh -huh. Um, and it's crazy to be in that position, man. I never, I never I th know. <laughs> thought I would be there. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean that, that really is quite the, uh, um, accomplishment to, to, and reward for what you've been through. And then all of a sudden now the, the recovery communities coming to you and say, Hey, we, we want you to help us out. Yeah. Isn't that cool? Yeah, it is, man. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> it's a cool facility, man. I get to see people get out of prison, you know, and start to try to live a different way, a different life. And, right. um, and just people that, you know, like me have been through it a few times and they're not giving up and they just keep trying and they're back at it. And, well, along those lines that you just said, it, it, 
what if if someone's listening to this right now who is struggling with with their addiction or or anything for that matter what advice would you give them because i mean honestly sean you're it's a miracle you're alive yeah and i and i I know your whole you know unfortunately we haven't been able to tap into every aspect of what you've been through but a lot of it but what would you what advice would you give someone who just feels like man i'm never going to be able to get this kind of sounds cliche a little bit but i it's surrender it is like it really Mm -hmm. and i kind of call it like the switch that happens for at least for me and for others and i don't know it's it's different for each person you know some people get like one dui and never drink again other people go to prison multiple times and then they eventually get it you know it's like Mm -hmm. but you have the ult you ultimately have the choice to say I'm I'm done with this crap like I I'm giving it up I'm I'm willing to do whatever it takes and then no one can take that choice away from you but nobody can make you make that choice you know that's a good point it's very completely up up to that person yeah but very well said yeah yeah um well, again, I go back to you, you. You got to that point where you're like, okay, I'm willing to make these tough choices now. Mm-hmm. I'll do what it takes to actually not only get clean, but stay clean and do the work. You know, you went to your AA meetings. Uh, you had family that was loving you, but at the same time holding boundaries with you. Yeah. Um, you had, you were working. You mm-hmm. were you were contributing. You were putting money away. You were paying some bills. Paying my own rent. Yeah. Paying your own rent. <laughs> I mean, and for someone. You know, a lot of people who've never gone through addiction are like, well, that's just, yeah, that's what we're supposed to be doing. But that for you was like this big monumental thing is the way I look at it, right? For sure, yeah. It Choices become very different in your mind when like you're responsible for your own actions, you know? Like I'm paying my (laughs) own rent. Yeah. If I use, I can go use, I can get high, but I'm going to be homeless and out on the streets really quick. Um, and that foundation too, I think, like I said, being a little bit old, I'm in my mid, my late twenties now, it's that too, just being older, paying bills, all that stuff definitely helps and makes you just kind of make different decisions in life. And, but it's, it's a constant struggle, man. I mean just being back in school too in UVU it's it's been humbling sure you know because I've always prided myself on being somewhat intelligent and then you go back to school 10 years later it's like holy crap I gotta actually apply myself and try these (laughs) new things you know it's it's very humbling but yeah I love that type of stuff man just yeah new challenges that's the only way you grow is struggle you know, you, you you tout a lot now that you live your life with gratitude. I know this is going to be a tough question, but what are you most grateful for? Most grateful for? Oh, that's a, is there something that stands out? Yeah. I mean, there's lots of things that stand sure. out, but I don't think I mentioned it. The uh, <clears throat> A couple months in, um, a really good friend of mine that I met here, Braxton Schofield. Um, I went to his funeral from an overdose. Yeah. 
and uh, I had actually never been to an overdose funeral before, and I uh, seen the look on his his parents' face and everyone's face. My face, like it. Yeah. It was really really tough, man, and I I still miss that guy to this day, but. I remember I was a couple months clean and just saying, I'm never, I'm never going to make my parents go through that. My mom, my mm-hmm. grandma, I never, right. ever want to make them go through that. And at that point, if I had overdosed and died, you know, it wouldn't have been a surprise to anybody. You know, I think everyone yeah. was just kind of, yeah, I wouldn't have been surprised. I, I think everyone was waiting for that call. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that stands out as being truly grateful is that I don't have to have my, my family. Yeah worry about that call anymore and worry that they're going to have to bury their only son, their grandson. And so that's awesome, man. Well, I got to be honest with you, Sean. I'm, I'm really so grateful for you. Um, you know, even having the chance to work with you and being in a small part of your journey. And, you know, I'm grateful that you trusted, trusted me enough to reach out to me at certain times. And, and I'm just grateful, even to this point, that you're sitting here sharing your story with me today yeah. on this uh, podcast. It just means a lot to me. I hope you know that. And I really do admire how you never gave up, dude. That's 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 the thing I'm getting from you is just how you just never gave up. And I really wouldn't have been surprised had you have died. I really yeah. honestly would have. I wouldn't have been like he did. Yeah. I would have been like, I saw that coming. Yeah. You know. So so great to see you. Yeah not only alive <laughs> but what you're doing you're you're giving back you're helping the recovery community you get to use your experience to help other people who are like man how are you, how are you doing this yeah so i just want you to know how grateful i am for you sean grateful for you man this is i was super stoked that you asked me to do this and yeah there's a small list of people I would get up this early for, and you're, you're on that. So I'm glad I made the list. I know. I know. I, it was funny. I like you want to come earlier than seven. You're like, no, no, seven's plenty early. No, this is great, man. I, so I, uh, I'm grateful to call you a friend. Thank so. you. That means a lot, Sean. Well, there you go, listeners. Another amazing story from another amazing person, Sean McDonald. Um, if someone wanted to reach out to you who's struggling. And they just want to maybe ask you a question. Is there a way they could do that? Is that you feel comfortable? I mean, can they reach out to you on social media? Would that yeah. be a good way to do it? Yeah, social media, um, Facebook, Instagram. Um, my Instagram is Sean Michael MC, and then just Facebook Sean McDonald, and definitely send a message because I get like a thousand friend requests a day that I don't know people. <laughs> so definitely. Yeah. yeah if, you're, if you have any questions, you can send me a message awesome. and I'll try to get back to you. Very cool. Thanks for being willing to do that. Cause, um, so, yeah, there you go. If, if you're struggling or if you have a question for Sean, please reach out to him. I know he'd be happy to help in any way that he could. That's just how he lives his life now. I'm grateful for all you f- uh, listeners and followers of this belief cast. It means a lot to me. I'm grateful to be clean myself. And I'm just grateful for this opportunity to hear these amazing stories. It makes me want to be better. So there you go, listeners. Have an amazing day. Until next time. Thanks, Tom.